0: I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. To talk about apologetic methodology, what am I talking about? Well, let me explain. Um, I'm going to try to break this down as simply as I can, uh, because this topic gets overly complicated, and I want it to be something that every Christian can really wrap their head around, like they can really get this thing and apply it into their own lives, in their own faith, and in their own witnessing. So... We're going to break this down as simply as possible because it turns out that there is a a big debate among Christians as to how it is you're supposed to go about showing that Christianity is true or whether you even should to non-believers. There's different schools of thought called things like presuppositionalism or evidentialism or fideistic or fideism, um, classical views. And these are all categories of apologetics. Things like uh, answering questions like, how do I know Christianity is true? How do I show Christianity's true if um, if Christianity can be shown by evidence or not? Those types of things. Well, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger and we're digging into this topic today primarily because I was going to interview Braxton Hunter today and he's sick. so we're postponing that two weeks and I had to come up with something sort of short notice to talk about. and I just did a debate on this topic. Uh, so let me catch you up. If you're if you've been following with me, if you're like one of my regular viewers, then here's information you're probably going to want to know. Um, I did a debate last Thursday on the topic of apologetic methodology or this very question we're dealing with today. I'm not here covering the debate. Uh, because it turns out the debate isn't available for like months and months still living waters is where the debate was held it was pa- me and pastor emilio ramos and the two of us had a brotherly disagreement in, in a godly fashion on this topic and that debate as soon as it's available i will let everybody know but i don't think it'll be until maybe the fall and there isn't even a hard date on that because living waters is launching a whole like online school and they're launching the debate when the school launches so they're using it as like a tool to advertise for the school so i 'm going to be be waiting for that thing to come out so today i 'm not giving you an analysis of the debate or a recap of the debate rather, this is the content that 's fresh on my mind, and since I had a cancellation, this is what i 'm going to be sharing about and I hope it helps I hope it helps clear up clear the air because I would say and i 'll make a couple bold statements right now that if you 're a Christian, you can have confidence that Christianity is true without even having evidence now that 's a pretty bold statement. I do not mean, at least certain kinds of evidence, I do not mean that Christianity doesn't have evidence. No, nope, we have tons of evidence. I don't mean that at all. I simply mean that you have something as a Christian that gives you good reason to believe, even if you don't have access to that evidence, or unaware of that evidence, or have wrongly interpreted the things around Christianity, and you think there isn't evidence. So this is kind of a cool... Uh, Thing that builds our faith, builds our trust. So here's, here's what it comes down to. Um, this, in this in-house debate, uh, where I think I'm on solid biblical ground, I'm going to try to establish this biblically. That's the question that we often answer on this Tuesday live stream is, is it biblical or what does the scripture say about a topic? Um, the question is, what apologetic methodology is biblical or what way of um, showing the truth of Christianity Is a biblical thing, and before I get anywhere else, I need to like uh, frame the conversation around these two very important words. You already know the words; there's no new vocabulary for this. It's just knowing and showing. Knowing something is different than showing something. Knowing something's true is different than showing something's true. I'll give you an example. Um, You you you're accused of committing murder. And you know you didn't commit murder because you know where you were and you know what you did and you know what you didn't do. You know you didn't commit this murder because of your own experience in life. You are knowledgeable of this. But showing to other people that you didn't commit this murder, that's a whole other ball game. Like you can't show them you didn't by saying, well, I know, I'm confident. That's not going to convince them. That's not really good evidence for them. Uh, At least it's a little bit of evidence, but it's certainly not this overwhelming amount of evidence like it is to you. You know it in a way that you can't show it. So you you bolster, you get other evidences to support. You try to get an alibi who also knows you didn't commit the murder. You try and show the DNA doesn't fit or whatever, that kind of thing. So knowing and showing are two different two different tasks. And with the Christian, knowing that Jesus is the son of God, that he rose from the dead, that God has forgiven you of your sins and that you have a relationship with God. Knowing these things isn't always going to be the same as showing these things. The primary way in which Christians know Christianity to be true is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. That is, I, I say the primary, or how about I put it this way? The the greatest argument for Christianity, if, if although it's not technically an argument, I probably shouldn't use that term for it, but the the greatest thing the believer has to give them confidence and certainty is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Let me put it that way. Romans 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Why is why is this significant? Um, well because if the Holy Spirit's bearing witness with me, communicating to me internally that I'm a child of God, this isn't just the bare knowledge of being a child of God. This entails beliefs like God exists, Jesus has reconciled me to God, uh, my sins are forgiven. I have a relationship with God through Christ. All those things are entailed, those beliefs are entailed in the idea that God, um, that God is ministering to me or witnessing to me. This means that any Christian has incredible warrant or reason to support their belief in Christianity based upon this inner witness of the Holy Spirit. This is something that can exist in a person, whether they feel they have external evidences or not. And it's a convincing thing And and it's a rightly convincing thing. I'm going to argue for that in a moment. But I just want to get the get the basic idea, knowing and showing are different things. So when it comes to knowing Christianity is true, my primary or, you know, biggest reason to give me great certainty and confidence would be the witness of the Holy Spirit. Secondarily, evidence, arguments, logic and reasoning can come alongside in a secondary role and it can confirm or bolster or strengthen the evidence or the witness of the Holy Spirit in my life. So the Holy Spirit takes the primary role in knowing and evidence takes a secondary role in knowing. In fact, someone goes so far as to say, and I would agree with this, that if there's evidence that seems contrary to the witness of the Holy Spirit, you are warranted in believing God over believing that evidence. And I don't... Now, this, this, some people sounds like fideism. I'll come back to that in a minute. It sounds like blind faith. It's just absolutely not blind faith. Not at all. Because blind faith wouldn't have a witness of the Holy Spirit. There'd be nothing. There'd be no evidence of any kind. There'd be no experience at all. But rather, this is, this is really compelling when you think about it carefully. If the Holy Spirit really is telling, if God himself is telling me something, then somebody over here in a field, say, archaeology or textual criticism, trying to tell me that that's wrong, well, that person is certainly not as knowledgeable or trustworthy as God. I mean, it's hard to argue against that. I realize that a lot of skeptics aren't going to like this, but this video is actually not for skeptics. This is more for believers wanting to work this out because I'm not even trying to use this information to show a skeptic that it's true. I'm trying to talk about how believers can have confidence, even in spite of what looks to them like bad evidence or evidence against Christianity. So I'll come back to that in a minute, but let me, let me finish unpacking my view in more detail. And I give full credit to uh, William Lane Craig because, and and some are going to cringe when I say his name, you know who you are, <laughs> but I ask you to hear me out. Think this through, think this through biblically, right? Um, but but he has a great article in the book, um, Five Views on Apologetics, where he talks about all this stuff, knowing and showing, and I thought it was so good and sound and biblically right on that uh, um, that I would recommend it. Now... When it comes to showing Christianity is true, now as the Christian who says, I got the witness of the spirit, yet I want to go and witness to someone else and tell somebody else, like say an atheist or a non-believer or my brother who doesn't know what he thinks, but you know, I want to show him Christianity is true. I can't give them the witness of the Holy Spirit. I can't like give my brother my experience of God showing me I'm his child through faith in Christ. Like I can't communicate that to him. And so it seems as though that one of the greatest things I have, the greatest thing I have for confidence in Christianity, I can't impart to somebody else. And so we move into a different category when we are showing Christianity to be true. When we're showing, you know, others that Christianity is true, we offer evidence, we offer arguments, we offer reasoning. And this is where I can give evidence for God's existence through common sense, through things like the Kalam cosmological argument or, or argument from contingency, or I could just you know, walk them outside and look around and start asking them questions. Where do you think it all came from? You know, it certainly didn't pop into existence out of nothing. That's obviously not the case. Um, I can try to reason with them about God's existence. I can reason with them about prophecy in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New. I could reason with them about Jesus being uh, literally throughout the Old Testament, showing that God has inspired the scriptures and that it was all to point us to Christ. I could argue with them about historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ using uh, you know, accepted historical facts amongst a majority of scholarship, I could do all those things, but I can't give them the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, those things hopefully will will get them to the point where they're seeking the Lord, where they're calling on God, where they're praying, where they're taking more seriously the gospel of Christ, but I can't impart to them the internal witness that I have from the Holy Spirit. So, in summary, in in me knowing Christianity is true, the, the, uh, the evidence takes a secondary confirming role, but, you know, and, and the Holy Spirit takes a primary role. Now, in me showing Christianity to be true, I, all I have, the only tool in my toolbox is the evidence and I give it out. And I trust the Holy Spirit to work in that person's heart. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not working, right? I trust the Holy Spirit to do that, but I don't control that. So all I do is I give evidence, I give evidence, I give reasons, I give logic, I give rationality, all that kind of stuff. And I think that this is actually what we see in scripture. Uh, let me actually take you to a passage. Let me see if I can bring up my, uh, my Bible software here that doesn't look quite right does it let me adjust so you guys can see it a little bit more clearly or at all (laughs) hold on hold on we'll get there um oh dear this is this is this is somewhat problematic (laughs) i'll tell you what i'm not gonna be able to pull it up because i'm just having i'm having struggles today with this um okay so what we're what i'm gonna show you guys is first john chapter five. five first john chapter five verses nine and ten and i'm reading the esv translation listen to this and think about what i've just presented to you that the witness of the holy spirit is this incredible evidence in a person's life and i'll answer your objections because i already know what they are or some of them and then we'll go to your q a if you have questions you can put those in the live chat um and i'll be taking your q a uh, pretty soon here so here we are, First John 5, verses, verse 9, it says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he's testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. This is, this is, the question here is for Christians, okay? I'm not even trying, again, this is not the showing it to be true. This is an in-house discussion amongst Christians about knowing it's true. And here we have in 1 John 5 verses 9 and 10, a few really important statements. One of them is like in a statement, a statement of like epistemology. It's kind of exciting to think that it's in here in the text. Epistemologically, or how, how you know something, that's the idea of epistemology. How do I know this? Um, I know that if I accept the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Is that not a true principle? Right. If, if I think that anyone tells the truth, well, that means I'm believing that men have access to knowledge and that they can share that knowledge through their statements with me. Okay, do you believe this? I, you already believe this, whether you think you do or not, because all the time you accept things as true based upon testimony from people. You know, a lot of you, maybe in the audience, you're thinking, no, Mike, I know it's true because of scientific experiments. But the truth is you don't even know that. You believe that there were scientific experiments to prove something because you trust the testimony of witnesses. How much of even your scientific knowledge is based upon your eyewitness testimony, you doing it yourself? Almost none of it, almost zero, right? Almost all of the information you have about the world, about history, about life, about how things work, about biology, about medicine, about law, about whatever, it's based on testimony from what you consider to be credible witnesses. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, I think that's a fair way to learn things is through the testimony of credible witnesses. But if you're going to believe that, then First John 5, 9 saying, hey, well, the witness of God is greater. Well, duh. <laughs> duh. For a couple of reasons, God has all knowledge. Plus, God is truth. He will not lie. He cannot lie. So his witness is going to be greater than the witness of men. Him telling us something is more reliable than men telling us something. Absolutely. I, I don't see any way around that rationally. And then we have this witness of God is that he's testified of his son. And then verse 10 tells us that he who believes in the son of God has this witness in himself. So the witness of God, which is greater than all the witnesses of men, is in me, showing me, telling me the truth of Christianity. That's the knowing Christianity to be true. So showing is secondary. Evidence and argument are secondary. And this is, I think, what we see in Scripture. I think Scripture does this uh, over and over again. I think that Scripture has has times, and I'll, I'll give you guys some examples here in a minute, where the, um, the the people in the Bible knew it was true, through their own one on one even experiences with God, but they were showing it was true through other means because they couldn't give that experience to somebody else. So we're going to look at some exa- examples in the Bible. But first, let me let me tackle some uh, some other um, uh, issues. Um, I want you to imagine for a second that you are a German living in like the 17 or 1800s when the um, skepticism of Germany was at its highest and that the scholarly community around you were all unbelievers, unbelievers. They, they, They thought they had to demythologize the Bible and all the smart people around you basically assumed that every miracle account was false and that there was no evidence that could prove them in any way. So they just had this, basically, this hard worldview assumption. But as far as you know, you're a student in school. Everything you read, it tells you Christianity's false. All the stuff you look at, you look for evidence, but all the evidence that you find is just unbelieving scholars being thrown in your face. And so you are sort of you're trapped in the scenario where Christianity is true, but you are, you are indoctrinated in an environment where you never experience its truth. I mean, this is actually modern day. This is even what some people are experiencing in their universities right now today, is that all the smart people they know are telling them it's false and they don't know the evidence that proves it, right? They think that the arguments for God are bad, but they don't know because they don't have the ability to think about them clearly or because they've been crowded by those who don't teach correctly those arguments for God. So what about that person? Does that person have a a good reason to believe Christianity? Or are we going to say that they should deny their faith? That they should say Christianity is false because they simply don't have access or knowledge of the evidence for Christianity. This makes Christianity sort of difficult for a lot of people. I mean, what about the person who's illiterate, who's never read a book, and they just heard the preaching of the gospel? And then someone comes to them and they say, oh, here's all these reasons you should doubt. Oh, gosh, I guess you're right. I should probably doubt my faith because I have to have evidence and arguments In order to have this confident trust in Christ, well, I think that that's a bad place to be. I think that if you think you have to defend Christianity against every argument, or it's therefore false, then you've got a major problem—a major problem. Um, Or even worse, you think you have to defend Christianity against every possible question. Like if someone can merely ask you a question, you don't know the answer, if that means Christianity's false, then you're something's wrong. Something's wrong with your epistemology here, and something's wrong in your understanding of how you can know it's true. If that's all that's need for your unbelief is for people to keep asking tough questions, then you're going to stop believing everything, everything, because that's a really horrible um, standard for belief is if you ask tough questions, I stop believing things. But yeah, that's actually what a lot of internet atheism is based on is the idea that if Christians can't answer every question, they should stop being Christian. Or if they can't um, unravel every misrepresentation, or if they can't, handle every every possible like complicated topic then therefore they shouldn't uh, have their christian faith anymore and this is like a really unhealthy place for christians to be and when we engage in apologetics and we show christianity is true we sometimes fall into the trap of these unspoken assumptions like you have to you know bring to me evidence for this or else your whole worldview falls apart and that's um, that's not the case so I think, how can the German student in the 1700s, in the 1800s, who's isolated from good evidence and surrounded by bad bad arguments and bad philosophy, how can they rationally believe Christianity is true? Well, they have the witness of the Holy Spirit within them. And they can say, well, the witness of God is greater than the witness of man. Is that not actually true? I mean, even an atheist should be able to agree, at least in principle on this, that if God speaks to you, that is more reliable than what man says. Like that, I don't, I, this seems like an inarguable point to me. So then they should be able to say, no, I have confidence in Christianity. Even though I can't answer that question, can't answer that question. That's the difference between knowing and showing. They may not be able to show it's true to others, but they can know it at least for themselves. Now, here's the next question I get asked at this point is, Mike, what about the Mormon? What about the Mormon, Mike? The Mormon says they have the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Mormon says that they have the burning in the bosom. This is the old phrase that you would get in Mormon literature and and Mormon uh, uh, preaching. Is they have the burning in the bosom, that they pray and they go, ooh, yes, I just know Joseph Smith is God's prophet and the Book of Mormon is God's word and, um, and they just say that they know it. Now, here's where you, you hopefully start to understand this view even better. Um, the Mormon has, gives me no reason to doubt the witness of the Holy Spirit in my life because what I didn't do was say, everybody who makes a claim should be believed. No, that's not what was said here. I am believing in Christianity based on my actual veridical experience of the truth of Christianity from the witness of the Holy Spirit. When somebody else comes up to me, LDS or whoever they are, and they say, well, I've had the same thing. I have no reason to think that what they're experiencing is the same as what I've experienced. I have no reason to think so. I mean, unless what you think we're arguing for is believe everyone's claims about everything. But that, you know, only only like next level atheism gets you thinking that that's what I'm saying because there's an inability sometimes to understand the arguments that Christians are making when you have... A lot of the popular level atheism online so what what are we saying we're saying that hey mormon i know Christianity's true despite what you're claiming but that doesn't mean i'm showing it to you like i'm not be able to show the mormon that i'm right and he's wrong with my testimony of the spirit just like he's not able to show me that he's right and i'm wrong so then we go to evidence that's when we go to secondarily we go to evidence so i go to archaeology and i say well archaeology supports the bible it refutes the book of mormon you know the um just ask him where the events in the Book of Mormon took place. They don't even have a clue because it it doesn't match any of the archaeology of the New World. It fits, it it violates the known history of the time as far as like when horses were brought over, or when bronze was being used, those kinds of things. And um and the one location in the Book of Mormon they've identified as the Hill Cumorah in New York. They've they started excavating there, stopped excavations because they found that it didn't match the Book of Mormon's descriptions at all. And so there's here secondarily evidence can come in and try to bring challenge. To those, uh, to those claims of the, of the witness of the spirit. So yeah, this, Mormonism doesn't threaten this view. Uh, nothing else threatens this view. Um, if, if you're to say other people can claim they've had the witness of the spirit, so you should doubt your experience. Um, that is to simply say that you should never believe God, even if it is God. I mean, that's, that's the end result of that line of thinking. Uh, we, we need to be able to listen to God. I don't want to create a, an epistemology of rejecting God's witness. That, that would be folly. So here's a little sample of uh, one of the places in Scripture where evidence is used like this. Evidence is used like this. Um, knowing is one way, showing is another way. And it's in 1 Kings 18. This is where Elijah he makes a wager. Elijah makes a wager with the, the people of, of Israel. And you guys know the story. It's Mount Carmel, right? On Mount Carmel, Elijah meets with the, the people, and there's these false prophets of Baal and Asherah, they're there as well. And then there's Elijah by himself. He's dealing with like 400 um, bad guys, so to speak, and himself alone. And there he offers them a wager. And, he's, and, and he tells them the, the problem at hand is that they're trying to, the people are trying to decide whether God, Yahweh is God rather, or if Baal is God. And Elijah's like, look, if, if this is actually First 1 Kings 18.21, he says, if the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So he's asking the people to try to make a choice. Who is really God? This is about like essential truth about who God is, right? Baal or Yahweh, who is God? And then in 1 Kings eighteen twenty-four, he offers them the way they'll decide, the, the way they'll figure out who's God. He says, you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And God, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah's wager goes like this. You build an altar, you put an offering on it, and you ask your God to burn it up without your assistance boom, just sin fire. I'm going to do the same thing and we'll see which God is real by the one that can do this miraculous deed. So then they do this. They, they try to, you know, they build an altar, they put the animal on it, they pray, they cut themselves, they do all these crazy things. Nothing happens because Baal doesn't exist. And then Elijah comes in 1 Kings 18, 36 and 37 and he prays over his now drenched with water altar to show the power of God. He says, oh Lord, God of Abraham... Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Let it be known. He wants to show them that God is God in Israel and that you are, or that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've turned their hearts back. So Elijah, here's the thing. Elijah knows that, that Yahweh is God. He has no doubt about it. He has total certainty that God is God. doesn't doubt it at all. He knows it through his own experiences. He's encountered God. He's a prophet of God. He's experienced God in his life. He has other reasons to, probably he could say he has the Torah. He has the testimony of the work of God in the life of Israel. He's got all these different things, right? But that's not how he's showing it's true to the people. To the people who are in this hardened, darkened state, he brings them a new piece of evidence to confirm miraculously that God is God. Right In verse 39, when the people see God answer by fire, they do respond with some sense of belief. It says, and when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they've been convinced. They've been, their minds have been changed. Now, some would say, Mike, this is just the testimony of a miracle. All we're saying is that only miracles can prove God. Well, I mean, miracles do prove God, but, but you don't have to always be the eyewitness of the miracle. You see, what would happen next is that what happened on Mount Carmel would get spread throughout all Israel. As the witnesses, multiple eyewitness testimonies would talk about their change of mind when they saw the uh, the evidence on the mountain of God's, uh, you know Yahweh's true existence. So yeah, I think this is a great example of knowing and showing, knowing and showing. Elijah knew it one way; he showed it another way. We can get other examples too. Um, in the uh, in the plagues on Egypt, when Moses was sent to go to Pharaoh, he was told that he would he would basically allow Pharaoh to decide when the plague on the, of the frogs would go away. This is kind of a strange event in the uh, in the plagues. Pharaoh is told, you know, you pick when the, uh, when the frogs will go away. And then Moses tells us why in Exodus 8.10. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So he's letting, you know, uh, Pharaoh decide when the frogs go away as a way of proving that God is the one controlling these things so that he'll know there's no one like God. Now, Moses already knew there was no one like God. He already knew it through other means, but he's trying to show it to the Pharaoh through these means. Knowing and showing are two different tasks. Knowing and showing are two different tasks. I think that if we understand that, all of our apologetic methodology questions, classical, evidential, all that stuff, it it falls into place. It falls into place. In fact, classical, um, you know, some people think of classical apologetics as this two-step method. First, you give someone arguments for God. Then you give them arguments from the resurrection uh, to, you know, specifically Christian faith. Um, other people, they'll, they'll say evidential apologetics, and that's going to be a one-step method. At least this is how some interpret it, where you just bring the evidence for the resurrection and that, that evidence alone should establish God and, in Jesus. So God's existence and the truth of Christianity and others do the cumulative case where they say, oh no, no, no you want, you want like way more than that. You want, Arguments for God's existence, evidence for the resurrection, prophecy, the unity of the Bible, all, you know, boop, 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 and they're just going to add tons and tons of evidence. Um, My thought is that all of these are perfectly fine. I tailor them to the person I'm witnessing to, right? How long do I have? What do they already believe and affirm? Meet them where they're at, which is really what we see in the Bible. We see people being met where they're at and then being given more reasons to trust and believe in God. I'll give you another example. In Jeremiah 28 verse 9, it says, uh, As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Then it will be known. Now, this is Jeremiah. He's a prophet of God. And he's saying, you're doubting even maybe that I'm a prophet of God. Look, well, then wait and see. Wait and see. Here's an evidential way of knowing that I don't need, but you obviously need. So I'm going to give that to you. Wait and see. And when it comes to pass, then you'll know. I think that um, Jeremiah didn't need this to know he was a prophet, but he helped use these things to show others that he was a prophet. Uh, Jesus did this in the same way. You know, he didn't need his miracles to prove who he was to himself, but he uses it for other people. We can give you example after example of this sort of thing. In uh, In the New Testament, we have the apostles themselves using the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, which really looks a lot like a historical apologetic. They use the evidence for the resurrection of Christ to try to persuade or convince or show others that their claims about him are true. That's interesting. They're using the evidence. In fact, I'll take you to 1 Corinthians 15. This is actually one of my favorite, probably my favorite apologetic passage in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15 because of its multi-use. It has so many different reasons why I end up going here when I'm talking about um, uh, the scripture. Whether I'm talking about the earliness of the testimony or the inclusiveness of the testimony or in this case, the nature of the testimony. Um, so the apostles, they regularly argued from for the resurrection from eyewitness testimony. And here we are in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read it verses 3 through 8. Follow along with me now. This is giving us how we can show Christianity is true. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And notice this, now he gets into all these people that Jesus appeared to. Why is he talking about this? Why doesn't he just say he rose according to the scriptures? He says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to james then to all the apostles last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me paul says now when you read first corinthians 15 in context the whole chapter you'll see he's saying that not only he brought this this knowledge and this message but this is what all the apostles were bringing to they all had a consistent message in that jesus died rose right it was according to the scriptures and that there were witnesses upon witnesses upon witnesses Now, did Peter need to know that there were 500 witnesses to believe the resurrection? No, he saw it with his own eyes. Did did Paul need to know there were 500 witnesses to believe the resurrection? No, Paul saw it with his own eyes. But to show others, his knowing and showing are not exactly the same. Uh, Now, German scholar Wolfhart Pannenberg, he says that um, Paul is actually following the customary method of Greek historians, such as Herodotus, in proving a historical event, namely the listening of witnesses. In other words, it's it's obvious that what they're doing here is giving a case for the resurrection, not just proclaiming the truth of it, right? There's a, there's a showing that's happening here. C.H. Dodd, he said, There can hardly be any purpose in mentioning the fact that most of the 500 are still alive, unless Paul is saying, in effect, the witnesses are there to be questioned. So this is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal. Now, um, I want to talk, before we go to your guys' questions about what about Christians who doubt the witness of the Holy Spirit? Because I think a lot of people hearing this, or some people at least, are going to be like, you know, Mike, in principle, I agree. I agree that, you know, that, that confident witness of the Holy Spirit is enough for me to be a, a Christian. I should trust that. And some are, are going to be encouraged because they're like, yeah, why am I doubting the witness of the Spirit of my life? Why am I doubting that? That's more reliable than anything else. But others are going, to, are going to say something different. They're going to say, but I don't really feel the witness of the Spirit that much. I'm not even sure if I have the witness of the Holy Spirit in my life. And you feel like this, you're, you're struggling. Uh, You're struggling. And I, I don't want you to feel like you're without hope, right? Again, I'm not claiming Christianity doesn't have evidence. I think it has tons of evidence. I think it has compelling evidence, evidence that should convince you to be a Christian. I just think that Christians have, in general, something even better than that evidence, which is why not have everything we've got, right? Why not take it all? But it's true that we can quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Holy Spirit, meaning I can kind of, I can kind of resist the Holy Spirit. I could put down the work of the Holy Spirit or that even those who have a testimony from God might doubt it for other reasons. Maybe they're just uncertain. Maybe they're just wavering because of fear. Maybe, maybe they've, they've, they've come to a place where they don't even trust the witness of the Spirit in their own life because of some kind of issue that's going on. It could even be sin. It doesn't have to be sin, but it could even be sin. Romans 1 ties the idea of doubt and sin together, and I know I've experienced that in my own life, and I've experienced, I've seen it in the life of those I've counseled, that very often those who are really doubting the Christian faith, um, if you trace back the genesis of the doubt, it, it does come from sometimes sin in their life. This is not to condemn them, but this is rather to say, hey, what's causing this thing? It might be that my own rebellion against God is causing me to quench the Holy Spirit, and that's the cause of my doubt, and here I am trying to fix it with evidence Yet I get all the evidence in the world that doesn't get any better. That's because it's not an evidence issue. It's a spiritual battle that you're going through. That may be the case. But I do think evidence can come in and help people who feel like they're lacking the witness of the Spirit or they're at least their awareness of the witness of the Holy Spirit. Evidence can help them. You could be like, the, like John the Baptist, who he doubted. He doubted Jesus. Now, think about what John had, John the Baptist. John the Baptist had God himself telling John, like God, Telling John, when you see the one on whom the Holy Spirit remains, he's the one, right? He sees it happen to Jesus. I mean, John has more evidence than most humans throughout history to trust in Christ, at least as far as his unique situation goes. He's got this incredible evidence. But yet, John is then in prison. His expectations about what the Messiah would do are not happening. His expectations about perhaps some level of prosperity in this world are not happening. The pain of his life is causing him to doubt God to doubt Jesus. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask him the question. uh, John wants to know, are you the one to come or should we look for another? Are you the one to come? Now, John's already got more than enough reason to believe. But Jesus, he doesn't chasten him because he's failed to receive the witness, you know, he's already got. Instead, he on the spot, we read this in the Gospels, he does a bunch of miracles right then and there. And he sends the disciples back to John saying, tell them what you've seen right? All these things, uh, miracles, demons cast out, all these healings that are going on. Tell him you've seen these things. And he asks John to rely not just on Jesus saying, yes, I'm the one, but on Jesus's actual works as evidence to bolster his weakened faith. So Christians can find evidence to support their faith, evidence to strengthen their faith. But in the lack of evidence, ideally you have such a strong um, sense of the work of the spirit. You're walking in the spirit You're you're, you're attending to your personal devotional life with God. Your obedience to Christ is present. And so your awareness of the Holy Spirit is such that you have something that would overcome even evidence. Now, this is why some, I think, they look into the Christian church. Guys who love apologetics like you and me, most of us do, right? Um, You look at the Christian church and you get frustrated. Why don't they care more about apologetics? Why don't they care more? And yet a lot of these people are just spiritual and they don't need it for themselves. Right? They don't need that evidence. They think it's nice, they know it's there, but they don't need it because they are so convinced by the, just the work of the Spirit. Apologetics is sometimes populated by people who've gone through a season of doubt, didn't either sense or have an awareness of the, of the of the witness of the Spirit or had doubted it for some reason that they then went into the evidence study. But we should recognize that this is a healthy thing when Christians say, I love evidence, but I don't need more evidence because the work God's done in my life is evidence plenty for me I think that's a healthy thing to do and then I want to use evidence to convince non-believers to seek the Lord that they might experience this for themselves um, I hope that this 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 is helping people out there to gain confidence and strength know that evidence is a tool in our toolbox but it's not it's, it's not um, the only thing that I've got these external evidences um, yeah now some would say oh Mike this is just fideism this is just mere fideism um, and atheists especially are sure to go there Um, I say this just from experience okay look I'm not accusing every atheist of this but if you're an atheist who's aware of your own community you can't possibly be unaware of the fact that atheists many thrive on misrepresenting and distorting Christianity Uh, basically Christians often look at encounters with atheists like a chance to share and witness sometimes they're jerks about it granted but I'm hoping that you're your typical Christian is, is doing this thinking, oh man, my heart's for this person. I want to see them come to Christ. But atheists often engage in the discussion with with Christians and their goal is to just entertain themselves the way that they would make fun of someone in school back when they were a bully. You know I mean? This is, this is what it comes down to is I'm just here to poke at you and make fun of you. So here's one person who's like, I want to accomplish outreach here. And the other one's like, I'm just, I'm just looking to entertain myself with mockery and ridicule. And if you see this in atheism, then I want to encourage you that this is just a um, I think this is a revelation that there's a spiritual dilemma going on here. There's a spiritual thing going on here. There is a darkness and light situation happening here. And the different approaches show that. Um, yeah. And even even in my own experience, the atheists who have been polite to me in public have been not so in private. And that's unfortunate. Um, I've reached out to several atheists for uh, casual, friendly, private discussions or, you know, that kind of thing. And they've all just ignored me, in, in even in private, even prominent ones. And so... Now, now maybe they don't all do that, but that has been my unfortunate experience so far. Um, Now, uh, so is it fideism though? Uh, No, uh, it's not fideism because fideism, again, would not have even the witness of the Holy Spirit. It would just be belief with no reason at all. I mean, certainly the witness of the Spirit is evidence and reason for me. I just can't show it to you. So that's not fideism. Um, Let's see. Now, am I saying that arguments convert, that my argument will convert someone to being a Christian? No. No, the Holy Spirit will convert. The Holy Spirit will transform a heart, but the Holy Spirit can use arguments and evidence and part of the person's path to come to Christ. Um, every view I've ever read of apologetics affirms that it is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit that we're going to attribute to people's being saved, not the arguments and evidence. And I don't care, again, if you're going to use a one-step method of of just the resurrection evidence or a two-step method of arguments for God and then resurrection, or if you're going to use a cumulative method I think it all falls under the category of knowing and showing, recognize those differences and you've, you're in a good place. So let me, uh, let me go to your guys' questions. Um, thanks. I, I'm, I will admit my, my presentation today for what I'm sharing with you is a little more scattered than I usually am just because we had a cancellation for the interview and I wanted to put something together real quick that I thought was fruitful for you. It's something I've been thinking about. Um, it's not exactly my debate that I had the other day, but it's related to it. So uh, let's see here. Okay. Um, the first question is from Luke Martin, who says, uh, Mike, do you like Ray Comfort's approach to sharing the gospel? Um, Generally, yeah, I I don't I don't um, I'm not speaking about all of his approaches to apologetics here. Some of his apologetics I really like. Sometimes I think, oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it that way or whatever. I don't think that that's a big deal. But um, but his approach to sharing the gospel in that he offers he offers the law. I think that that's, it's thoroughly biblical. I think if you study the book of uh, Galatians, you're going to see that using the law or using at least whether you use the Old Testament 10 commandments or not, I I don't think you have to use the 10 commandments exactly, but you have to use, you know, sin as the issue that God is going to resolve in Christ. I need to show a person that they have sin issues. Now, I don't think you have to do that robotically in every scenario. I think you can listen to the person, find out where they're at. But using the fact of sin is huge in sharing the gospel. Um, I hope that that helps. Sorry. Hey, uh, AJ, quick, quick mention to my mod, AJ. AJ, when you send me more messages, it like freaks out my, my messenger thing and I can't find my place again. So we just hold off on the on the messages for now. Um, okay, Toby Noble says, Messianics no nope, nope, just happened again hold on i gotta find back to the top of the page <laughs> all right toby noble messianics know the only way to salvation is through jesus and jesus alone no doubt about that but they believe in following torah most aren't jews is torah and jesus correct i don't understand the last part of that question is torah and jesus correct yes absolutely don't know i don't understand how that's relevant um um, if you if you believe in the in the gospel but you think you're supposed to obey the law, I think you're confused but you're saved. If you're going to tell me that you have to obey the law to be saved, you need to read the book of Galatians because that is um, under the anathema or the the cursed the curse of Paul and ultimately from the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter one. So there's the the, the quick and dirty definition there. Uh, Debbie Maloney says, "Do you have assurance of your salvation? Can you do a talk on it, please?" Yeah, I think I have assurance of my salvation. I think on a human side, that assurance has gone up and down in my life. I think though that um, the assurance, um, I think that Christians can be truly saved even when they don't feel that sense of assurance, right? But it's healthy, man. its I like what 1 John says, right? If uh, um, fear, you know, perfect love casts out fear, right? Because f- fear involves torment. The idea that I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm going to be still going to be judged. Um Yet, the scripture says that God knows our hearts and he's greater than all things. Meaning, I'll give you my quick translation or interpretation of this passage in 1 John. The idea is that God wants you to have assurance so that you can have great confidence in your prayers and your your posture towards him and your worship. But even if you could be a saved Christian and be doubting your salvation, and it's not a healthy place to be, but the good news is God still knows greater than that he's greater than your heart he knows all things you are still saved in spite of these fears that you're struggling with and it's just a, a spiritual growth that needs to happen um let's see here nick hay says at what point is error too much to continue fellowshipping with someone we should be gracious but also need to not sacrifice truth right do you have a service have you seen service christie videos thoughts on him and why that was a lot of questions in one question. Um, okay, what point is is too much error going on? Well, there's there, there's an there's the easy side of this question, right? If if the error is related to the gospel, the essential gospel of Christ, it's too much error. Period. Too much error. Stop fellowship in that situation. Doesn't mean you quit outreach. Doesn't mean you you give them a cold shoulder and you hate you hate the person or you refuse to acknowledge their existence or some twisted thing like that. But sweet christian fellowship included in the body of christ must be broken when there is um there is a rebellion against the very gospel of christ and then if a person has grievous open rebellious sin there can come there can come a time where that also has to happen but that should be done with the spiritual leaders in your church not just you on your own i think i think we should involve them in those types of things and we get this in the book of first corinthians um, so those are the two situations um, have I seen the Sir- Service Christie videos? Um, yeah, I've seen a, I've seen a few of them, and I hesitate to comment on people who I haven't spent a whole lot of time on. But my I'll just be honest with you guys. My vibe is a great deal of genuineness, but uh, a willingness to misrepresent the other side. And I would not recommend anybody be watching the kind of videos that I saw from Service Christie. I'm surprised he hasn't done one about me, or maybe he has. Everybody's compromised, everybody, he's like the only true Christian left in the world is the impression you get. And I I think that's a, I'm I'm happy that's not the case. I'm happy that's not the case. There's good discernment and bad discernment. And my honest opinion is that that's not good discernment. Um, Yeah. So if, especially if you struggle with comprehending these things and you mostly just hear alarm bells, but you can't really follow the logic and the the theology of it, especially avoid videos like that, that just turn you into a conspiracy theorist about every, every Christian pastor out there right mika agrees mika knows right all right um power drunk says uh what do you recommend if somebody that is a family member doesn't even want to discuss anything relating to god this is she's get get out of here get get out of here um um maybe give them some time i i know this might sound weird (laughs) um it's possible that they don't um they don't see you as anything other than a preacher. And if that's the case, then I would seek to to build a relationship with them a little bit more. It's a family member, you've got time for this. Why not connect with them and have it not relate specifically to God in those discussions? Why not just build a bridge, right? Build a bridge. Now, this doesn't mean that you 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 never talk about God to them at all, but you want to help them understand that you do care about them and that you are a, a real human being and that you see that they're a real human being. And you want to make sure that that takes place. And it's not just, they're like, man, I can't open this jar. Can you get this? And you're like, you know, who could open this jar? God. God has the power to open it. You know, it's like everything you say, you're you you you're so committed to the gospel that you bring it back to that, but you wouldn't like help them fix their car. That could be a problem. Like, you know, be a real person. Um, anyway, those are my thoughts. Power drunk. I'm not sure if that really relates to your situation or not. Ash uh, Eliminopia <laughs> says, um... What would you recommend for someone who doesn't have a local church? I'm currently watching videos in lieu of physically attending. My local churches all have some far out, almost New Age theology. Ash, my recommendation, guys, take this as just my two cents. This is just Mike's Mike's thoughts. Okay, this isn't something you have to do. This isn't like the the perfect Bible answer for this question. Many questions, I don't know if there's a clear, easy biblical answer I can give you. Uh, there are principles I would try to apply though. So here, here I go. Here's my attempt is that we're not to forsake the gathering together of ourselves, according to Hebrews, and that God's made you in the body to be part of the body. I think that's really important. My thought is pick a church and go unless it's actually a false gospel. Pick a church and go be in attendance with the body of Christ. Try to seek to be part of the connect, connected body there. Try to be to be a blessing and a benefit to others. You don't hide where you're different than them. That's fine. That's fine. But do it, do it in a spirit of brotherhood and be committed. Um, you're, you're not going to find a perfect church. That being said, what that means is you will go to a church that has problems. Now, you said you're worried about them having new age theology. Well, that very much concerns me too. But maybe you can make a difference there. Maybe your presence can be a stopgap against that sort of thing. But, but it would be a healthy con- contribution to the body and not a com- combative kind of fight every time. Some guys, they get so irritated. Let's be honest, right? We get so irritated when we see error, or at least what we think of as error, in other believers that we that we don't know how to function in relationship with them while they have error, and that's something we need to learn how to do. Um, all right. the The Robertson's Russ says, "How do we know what the uh, what we hear from God is true? I've been told and really felt that God told me this or that, then I find out that it was all wrong or really off. Well, th- well." Everything you hear from God is true. It's, let me try to break this down as I understand it. Everything you hear from God is true. End of story. If you hear from God, it's true. The issue is you were not always hearing from God when you thought you were. Now, personally, when I have, you know, people say, "I, I feel like God's telling me this. It's not on the same level as their confirmation of the witness of the spirit that they're a child of God. It's like a whole different kind of experience. And maybe they're relaying, other lesser experiences to that experience of the witness of the Holy Spirit. And that could be the problem there. And how do you know you're doing that? Well, the thing you thought was from God didn't come to pass. Guess what? You're thinking things are from God when they're not. Then you need to, you know, start to notice the difference um, and work through that. Uh, yeah, it, it's safe to learn that. God wasn't wrong. You were wrong about what God was saying. You know, does that mean you're wrong about everything you think about God, what God says? Um, no, I, don't, I, think, I think you should be able to see the difference between your impression that you thought God maybe was telling you versus the actual witness of the Holy Spirit as to your relationship with God through Christ. Devin Wagner says, "Can logic and reason grieve the Holy Spirit if it is elevated above faith and trust in Christ's work in in and through us?" Well, I mean, proper logic and reason will never disagree with the, our faith and trust in Christ's work in and through us, proper logic and reason. So, would it be logic and reason that Christ is, or the Holy Spirit's grieved by? Not really. I mean, it would be logic and unreason. It would be, we're thinking we're logical. I think I'm reasonable and I'm logicking logicing and reasoning my way right out of the Christian faith, but that's, but I'm wrong. I'm in error. I just can't tell. It seems so smart to me. Would that grieve the Holy Spirit? Yeah. I think that would grieve the Spirit uh, because of the departure and, and the false beliefs. Con Cole says, does the parable of the sower in the synoptic gospels, Make a case for presuppositional apologetics over classical or evidential methods. Um, I don't think the parable of the sower has anything to do with apologetic methodology because the parable of the sower isn't offering any apologetics. It's the word that goes out. The gospel goes out. It hits different soils and they respond according to kind. Right? In fact, um, one of the soils, they, they don't even comprehend it and they don't remember it afterwards okay so that's not an apologetic issue that's a hard issue another soil they receive it but it's choked out by um uh, the one that's choked out by the weeds the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things that's not an apologetic issue so it's not related to apologetics uh, another soil the one on rocks they it sprouted up quickly but it was it, it withered away when things like persecution comes comes up persecution okay that's not an apologetic issue and then finally the good soil it produces good fruit received and heard the word of God. And um, yeah, so these, it seems unrelated to apologetics. I think if we try to get something out of the parable that's not there, then we make a theological mistake. First and last says, what do you think of the divine counsel and Dr. Michael Heiser's work in that area? Um, Well, this is like starting a a flame war when I say this. Um, I disagree with some of the central issues that I think Dr. Heiser's presenting. Um, And one of these days I like to do a lot of homework on that to confirm if my disagreement is correct and then respond publicly on that. But I want to I want to give it justice. He, the, I, I highly respect the guy. He's put in tons of homework and he makes scholarship accessible to people. And I can learn a lot through the things he shares. But I do think there are some problems. And I think they're in the core texts that he uses. But I, I need to do my homework before I can bring that to you guys in a way that I think might be fruitful to the body of Christ. Um, if nothing else, I would say this. Please slow down if you're getting on the Heiser train and you're going to take it as far as it goes. I encourage you to slow down a little bit. And don't be too hasty. Let's not be hasty, little hobbits. Uh, all right, here's a long question from uh, Tobias Sedneff, who says: Recently, reading through the Book of Moses, Books of Moses and Joshua, I see multiple times that when Israel sinned or would make a mistake, they would be punished severely. Many times, it seems that the wrath of God was unleashed. Even the case of Achan in Joshua, after he confessed his sin, not only was he put to death, but his whole family. Is there a reason for God to bring out a more strict and punishing approach to sin in their times rather than now? Why does it seem that he is more forgiving, giving second chances now as opposed to strict punishments then? Sorry for the long question, but I just wanted a better understanding of God's strict wrath in the Old Testament. Um, Okay, so I want to try to reframe this discussion a little bit. Um, First, recognize this. Most sins do not actually get direct punishment from God. When they do, it seems like it's always pretty harsh. That is an interesting principle I see in scripture. Most sins do not get their direct punishment from God in this life. Generally, God's long suffering. And according to Romans, people are storing up wrath. So it's not that God is forgiving those sins. It's he's delaying judgment. And if they don't come to Christ, then they're going to get all that same strict wrathful judgment in the future it just isn't going to happen yet. Yet there's many times where God wants to make examples of sin in the case of things like Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood or Achan and his family. And Achan just, you know, he didn't really confess in that sense. He he was found out and then he admitted to it, but it wasn't confession in the in the pious sense of repentance and confession. That was not the case. Um, he just got busted and finally said it out loud. Um, So those situations or like say Ananias and Sapphira or in the book of Revelation where God brings his wrath down in ways that are even stronger than what we see in the Old Testament. When we see these things, we realize that what God's doing when he engages in judgment, he's always showing us how extreme sin is and how extreme the punishment on sin is. The rest of the time, he's not forgiving. He's delaying. This is what Romans talks about in detail. His wrath is being delayed, held back, held back so that he doesn't have to exact that wrath. But sometimes... He, he does um, sort of iconic examples of judgment so that we will, one of the reasons, so that we will know that sin has a huge and terrible cost in the eyes of God and when we stand before God in his judgment. So I would say God is the same level of strict in the Old and New Testament. Um, uh, realizing that these are iconic examples and not regular examples. Uh, Tim Wilson, he says, uh, today I lusted over a woman and I feel I failed God. How do I repent? Uh, Tim This is such a simple question. I'm really glad that you're able to ask it. Um, And uh, you're not alone. Uh, Not even remotely. Today, if you lusted today, anybody, the, the quicker you repent, the better. How do you repent? Lord, I'm sorry. I turn from that now. I refocus my mind upon good things instead of evil things. And I mean, that's it. It's an attitude change. My attitude towards that thing, instead of I'm going towards it now, I'm moving away from it. I repent. But the thing is, you don't feel better yet. Fine, who cares? You say, Lord, I know that your grace has forgiven me. I know that Christ has already paid the price for this thing. I trust in your finished work and I'm going to follow and seek you now. And I would say, don't delay even one second in serving the Lord and in praying and in worshiping God and in obeying God in your life. Don't delay because you want to wait till you emotionally feel better about that sin. Instead, let any grief cause immediate (laughs) repentance and start following and walking in obedience to Christ. No delay, man. Um, Stubbadub says, hey, Mike, do you think we should hold Moses as the author of the Pentateuch outside of the end of Deuteronomy? Uh, can we accept claims that it was modified or came from multiple sources? Um, excuse me, guys. Um, <clears throat> I think that we should hold, I think, yeah, we probably should hold Moses as the author of the Pentateuch. Um, but there's a whole variety of other views people have, and I don't necessarily have them, but... If someone says, well, Moses is the initial author of the Pentateuch, but it had some work done by others and God's inspiration was involved in all that, I can accept that as a, po- as a possible potential view. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. But I think a default position is, is Moses wrote it. Um, yeah. So I have a lot more of my own work I'd want to do on all this stuff to be able to share more. But Drew Beatty says, do you think presuppositional apologetics is useful as a supplement to classical apologetics? For example... Using presuppositional apologetics to establish theism, and then moving on. Um, Drew, I think that um, you're fundamentally misunderstanding what presuppositional apologetics is. So you're thinking pre, maybe you're thinking presuppositional apologetics is using the transcendental argument for God, that God provides the necessary preconditions for the intelligibility of of life or of anything, and you know He also provides the conditions for like more, morality, meaning, beauty, all that kind of stuff, and that's true. But that is not presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics as a category, presuppositional ism, is saying instead, no, you don't even you don't even use this argument to argue for God. You simply assume God, you have to assume God. And they only use that argument to try to bolster their reasoning for how it makes sense that they're assuming God from the outset. So, to answer your question, I think a transcendental argument for God is a wonderful thing. And an argument for morality is is like that. Um, and we can use that, absolutely. But that's not presuppositionalism. And I think an informed presuppositionalist would, would, would agree. Uh, Lindy Z says, um, Mike Winger asked this before, but she didn't get time for it. So it's a bit off topic. Is the idea of 10% tithe biblical or just consensus of many churches? I don't think the 10% requirement is biblical. Now, I've said this before in other places. And one day I'll do a teaching on it in detail. I don't, I don't think 10% is required. Now, the problem is people hear me say that and they think, oh, I don't have to give to my church. Nice. (sighs) That's not what I said, though, is it? (laughs) I think the 10% number is not required. I do think that we're called to give, give to those who are ministering to us spiritually, give to the poor around us, especially believers, and to be generous people in general, right? To help out those who are in need, who are being persecuted. I think there's lots of giving that goes on in the Christian life. I think 10%, though, is an artificial rule that is... um, unjustifiably imported from the Old Testament law into New Testament, uh, new covenant behavior. That's my short answer for you. Um, PJ Couture says, why do some say Jack Hibbs and Calvary Chapel are wrong and heretical? I don't know. Good question, PJ. I haven't got a clue. Um, Alyssa Don Santos says, how should I handle an atheist who keeps taking Old Testament verses out of context and asking me to explain them, but doesn't want to listen for the, to the reasons for Christianity at all when I answer. I think you just move on, Aly- uh, Alyssa. People who ask questions and they don't want answers, there's not much you can do. Pray for them. Uh, there's not a lot you can do for that person. I mean, what do I do? I, I could, I, You could point it out once, at least try. Say, hey, you know what? I'm going to talk to you, but I only want to talk to you about one issue. What's one Old Testament verse, one Old Testament issue that you think really matters? And we're only going to talk about that. We're not going to bunny hop over to any other issues. And then stay focused on the one issue. You know, they give it, then you offer an answer. Then you reason through and you... That's fine. But if they won't do that, then move on. Move on to listen. Move on to someone who cares. Sometimes people are willing to talk to you just because they like arguing. And in this case, it might be better for you to move forward and find somebody else to discuss this with. Uh, Judah Matthew says, Mike, is it outside orthodoxy not to think Adam's guilt was imputed to us all? It seems to me that Romans 5 is saying we're all sinners by nature because of Adam, but we die because of our own sin. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm able to answer this question. Um, um, there is, there must be, if you want to be orthodox, I think there must be some understanding of, of, of sin nature, but what is the understanding of sin's nature, right? Is, is Adam's, did I sin in Adam? Is Adam's sin in me from the point of my birth? Um, or is, is it? is it like a, a fallen nature? The result of Adam's sin is that I'm born with a nature inclined to sin with a proclivity to sin or that kind of thing. And those questions, I'm, I'm not sure that I would say somebody's out of orthodoxy if they disagree on that. Maybe I'm missing something here. Um, so yeah, I, I would be open to a few different views personally. So you guys, I, I thank you so much for joining me today. That, that's it for the live stream. Let me give you quick announcements though. This is important for the next coming weeks. Um, this Sunday and then and the following Sunday, I'm not doing my normal Sunday night study because I'm going to be doing things. I'm speaking here and then doing a conference over there. So I'm going to be busy. Um, I'll be at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa's winter camp this Saturday to speak to the high school students in Murrieta, California. After that, we're getting together with a bunch of YouTubers to like strategize for a few days and it's going to be fun. And I'll try and do like, maybe I'll do a live stream during that. But that means next Tuesday, I probably have no live stream. Next Tuesday, I probably have no no schedule, no normal schedule live stream. I might pop on and do something casual with my cell phone, but I'll actually be away from home. I won't even have my setup. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Until then, Lord bless you guys. Um, it's really comforting to me on this issue knowing that you can just trust the work of the Spirit in your life. That you can't prove to someone else that you have that, but you can let it be convincing proof to you. That is pretty profound. And may it encourage you, if you're a non-believer, and you've decided to watch, for some crazy reason this whole live stream Um, seek the Lord seek the Lord knowing that what evidence maybe maybe it should be convincing to you but for whatever reason it's not Um, not helping you get over that final hump I say seek the Lord seek for your own personal connection with him through Jesus Christ and put yourself in situations that would enable or encourage um, him responding to you as you seek him anyhow that's about all I got to say Lord bless you